Um, when we lack the thankfulness, it shows a narrow-mindedness on our part. It shows, us, it shows that we haven't got our eyes focused on Jesus, but we are focused on the world and what we don't have. You see, the world plays that game. The world, there are riots going on in France at the moment. There are plenty of people that are unhappy about one thing or another. It's because the world teaches us and the flesh teaches us to focus on those things which we do not have. So you may have 99 things, and where is your attention going to be? It's going to be on the one that you don't have, and then that you should put all your attention and focus and energy to make sure you get that one. Otherwise, you will not be what? Happy. That is a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe for a life that is never content. I mean, it reminds me of, the, of, the, of Israel. You know, when God saved Israel from a life of bondage, okay? So they were slaves in Egypt, slaves, being beaten, killed, made to work and to build, you know, uh, Pharaoh's buildings and, and, and not have any appreciation at all. So God saves them from that. And then while he's leading them home, they start complaining about, oh, but I miss my onions and my garlic. And, you, and we look at that and we say, how childish is that? How foolish that is when you've been given so much that you actually are worried about what, that, those little things that you, that you don't have. But isn't that really <laughs> what we all do? Really, think about it. It's what everyone does. You, know, you, you may have everything lined up, and the moment you lose one little thing is the moment you, you and I begin to complain. But let, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment, because I want to share with you what the Apostle Paul wanted for us. Okay, Not just for the, uh, the Ephesians, but for us. This is what God wants for you this morning. Ephesians 3.17 says that Paul's desire for us is that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now that is salvation. Okay, So that is when you receive Christ by faith, which means you've put your trust in him, that's salvation, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, how's that? For a desire for us to have. Now, well, imagine for a moment if we would comprehend even a portion of that. Now, when I first, coming from a bit of a science background, when I first read this passage, I thought to myself, I mean, if you, any of you who know how to, you know how to work out the the dimensions of a of a of a box, let's say, okay, or a, it's always length by width by height. And when I when I first read this passage, I thought, well, that's wrong. How could it be? What does he say? Breadth and length and depth and height. I mean, how does that? And then I re, it dawned on me one day that you're actually in the middle of it. You're not on the outside of it. So when you measure the dimensions of a box, you're measuring it from the outside, the length, the breadth, and the height. But when you're in the middle of the thing, how do you measure it? 
you measure the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth, which means we are surrounded by the love of God. And, and Paul's prayer is that we would be filled with that, that we would comprehend how deep it actually is. Um, imagine if we could comprehend it. Imagine for a moment what lives we would actually live if we understood it. And the question, the question I want to start off with this morning is, do we actually appreciate him? Do we really appreciate what we have in Jesus Christ? Do we appreciate him? And the reason I asked I ask that is, I'm going to give it to you in simple monetary terms, okay? Because I want you to think about the last thing you complained about for a moment. I want you to think about the last thing you missed, the last thing you murmured about, the last thing that didn't go right for you, that you weren't happy with, the last thing that maybe you complained to someone else about. I'm going to put it to you in simple monetary terms. If each of us here today had $100 million in the bank, okay, some of you might, I don't know, please let me know <laughs> if, you, uh, if you do have that. We've got plenty of good uses for it, okay? Um, but let's say you had $100 million sitting in the bank and as you're walking down the street, a $10 note dropped out of your pocket and you lost it. Would you go home crying that day? If your power bill, bill went up by a, a hundred bucks, would you be worried about it? Nah. If you got a speeding fine because you went, you know, five kilometres over and you got a $200, $300 speeding fine, you know, going in the freeway, would you really worry about if you had a hundred million dollars sitting in the bank? Nah, you wouldn't really care. You'd probably break the law again. Yet I want you to compare what you have in Jesus compared to $100 million. Doesn't compare. Doesn't compare when you realize that what he's given us is eternal life. And that eternal life is in him, the one that loves you. You know, I can't think of a more blessed thing to think about. You know, when you think about the family, you know, when you're with family that loves you, isn't it a blessed thing to have, right? And you look at your family, you look at those people that you are closest with, and you just love to be together. But imagine being together with the one that loves you the most. And not just for a day, but forever. And that's, what the, prom that's the promise that we have from him. And yet we complain. We complain about onions and garlic, really. When you think about it, but if we simply had a glimpse, right, if we understood even partially what the love of J Jesus is and how much we have in him, then really, what does any inconvenience or offense or failure or loss or even the loss of our own lives, what does it actually mean? Does it mean anything? In the, in the grand scheme of what we have and what we've been promised, means very little. And this is the devil's ploy to stop us from having true joy. Because if you can take your eyes off what you actually have and then focus it on the dredges of this world, us. Wow. There is no limitation 
on God. But understanding, we need to understand also that God's time is not always our time. When do we want stuff? Oh, look at them. When do we want it? Now. They want to they do that thing. right? What do we want? This. When do we want it? Now. We always want stuff straight away. We want stuff as soon as we can get it. And sometimes those things that we want, God says, just hold your horses because there's a better time that that thing will arrive. You see, God's time is not always our time. And for a number of reasons, I'm sure Abraham and, and Sarah, waiting 25 years for this kid to come along, would have said, what? When? What? I want it now. And they say, you know, five years goes by and 10 years go by and 15 years go by and 20 years go by and they're thinking, oh, when? But I want you to consider for a moment, if God had provided a son to Abraham at the normal time of life, we would have missed out on all these great lessons huh? of what happened in the middle, of how he stayed faithful while he was waiting for that thing, right? How he continued to obey, how he continued to follow after the Lord while he was waiting. He did not give up, give up on trust. And that's the lesson we learned from Abraham. For if God had given him the promise right from the beginning, well, he's received everything straight away, hasn't he? And we would have been robbed of these lessons about what genuine faith looks like. We also, also would not have been given this beautiful picture of the coming Messiah. Because Isaac was born supernaturally. Okay? Because of a promise that was made. And you know how Jesus was born? Supernaturally because of a promise that was made. Both Isaac and Jesus were born in miraculous ways. Are they the same? No, by no means. But Isaac becomes a picture of Jesus. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, Isaac has made this beautiful picture of Jesus in a number of different ways. And when Jesus arrived, they should have recognized, the spiritual leaders in Israel should have recognized the coming and his coming birth, but they didn't. God gave them plenty of signposts, posts, plenty of pictures along the way about what they should be looking for, even 2,000 years before. So then it tells us in Genesis 21, verses 3 to 4, And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac being eight days old, as God had commanded him. So one year after God had visited them, literally visited them with the two other angels, and they sat down and had a meal together, which is an extraordinary thing in itself, God says, in a year's time, I'm going to come back and I'm, you're, going to get that, you're going to get that child. One year after, God told them, he fulfilled his promise. Genesis 17, 19 says, And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And true to form, Abraham obeys the Lord, and then circumcises him and calls him Isaac. He does exactly what God had told him. And if there's one thing that epitomizes Abraham, it's his willingness to obey, even in difficult situations. He does this over and over again. 
But let's continue with our passage. Look at verse 5. It says, And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? And I have borne him a, for I have borne him a son in his old age. A son born to a man a hundred years old and born of a woman of 90 years of age. It's a little bit unusual, isn't it? Very unusual. Now that's something to laugh about, isn't it? That's something to rejoice in. And Sarah said, you know, God's given me this amazing thing and it's made me laugh and that everyone who's going to hear this thing is going to laugh along, not at me, is going to laugh with me as well. You know, laughing can be done for a number of reasons. I've seen people laugh at other people in ridicule and mock. That's not nice. I've seen people laugh at good jokes and bad jokes as well. But I've seen people laugh also when something is so fantastic, so unreal, so beautiful, that they don't have the words for it. And all that comes out is this, this joy. And Sarah rightly laughs. And she says, who would have thought that a woman of my age is going to be nursing a baby and bringing a child into this world? When God gave Isaac to Sarah, she knew full well that she wasn't really suitable for that, did she? That she wasn't worthy of such a gift. Such a gift was just way too wonderful for her. She knew that God had promised and she'd seen this God and the power that he actually had was beyond anything that she could imagine and all she could do was laugh. Tell me, do you laugh like Sarah when you consider what God has given to you? You see, God gave her a son that she didn't, she couldn't have conceived herself, that she really didn't deserve, only because of a promise that he has made. But consider for a moment the son that you have been given because of a promise that we never deserved, that we couldn't have ever gained with our own effort, and Sarah becomes a picture of us. Given something so miraculous, that really we should be laughing every day. Is your joy abounding when you consider that you were not worthy nor capable of receiving such a gift? But now you are in possession of a son. Not just a son, the son. He is yours. You and I are Sarah. Please consider what you have. Please be appreciative of what you have. Please be thankful. Reflect on what's being given to you. And you will have joy every day of your life. But in this particular story, Sarah stops laughing. She laughed when she received her child. And sometime later, 
probably about maybe two years later, it says that Abraham made a feast. And that particular time, it says in verse 8, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which, had born, which uh, she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. You see, Sarah became very protective of that thing that she had been given, of that child. And when she saw, while she was laughing because of the joy that she had, she then saw Ishmael laughing at him. And she couldn't take it. That he was mocking her son. And because he was older, he probably would have been about 15 years old, and her son was only probably about two, um, her blood boiled. According to Jewish custom, I'll just give you just a bit of background information about weaning. So why do you wean? What's, what's weaning mean? Well, according to Jewish custom, the time when a child is weaned is a cause for celebration. That's why he, he, he actually threw a party. A weaned child has essentially, what they're celebrating is that the weaned child has survived the most fragile stage of infancy when it's no longer dependent on its mother for food, but can actually begin to eat other food. Do you understand? And so that is the most dangerous part um, of a child's life. According to rabbinical traditions, you could be weaned anywhere between 18 months and even up to five years of age. Right? Some of the women are going, roll their eyes. But consider this for a moment. Um, in ancient cultures, infant mortality was actually quite high. And I want, to, I want you to compare it to what we have today. So if, and that's one of the reasons that um, you know, people in poorer countries have large families. Have you ever wondered that? People in rich countries have one or two kids. People in poor countries have nine, ten kids. And you think, that doesn't make sense. Because isn't there more mouths to feed? Well, not necessarily. Because in poorer countries, the children die before they get to adulthood. So if you have, you know, 10 kids, you may end up with five. Okay. And then on top of that, what we take for granted over here in this country is that we have a retirement system, a superannuation system, a pension system, so that you're looked after and you're given money by the government when you're old. When you don't have a pension system, who looks after you? Your children. And if you don't have enough children to look after you, then you're in serious problems. And so people in very poor countries have to have larger number of children because they die and then they need them to grow up, especially this is why boys uh, tend to be a bit more valuable because you need sometimes the stronger muscles to be able to plow the fields and do all that sort of stuff as well. So there are reasons for having larger families too. Um, just a comparison. Afghanistan, if you were to go to Afghanistan and look at the, uh, the infant mortality rate, um, 
it's about 10%. So one in 10 children die before they reach any, uh, before they reach, I think, three years of age. In comparison, so that's 100 out of 1,000, right? In comparison, Australia's infant mortality is 2.7 deaths per 1,000. That's 0.02%. So that just gives you, shows you the difference between what we have here and what we have in, and what we have in countries that don't have the health system that we just take for granted sometimes. Well, in Abraham's day, you probably had more infant mortality rate closer to 10%. No hospitals there. You were born at home. Okay, so there's a good chance you may not make it to your third birthday. So when you do make it to your second or third birthday and you can begin to eat solid foods, well then, it's a cause for celebration. And that's what they had for Isaac. And this is a party that he threw. Abraham decided to have a party for everyone. But something went wrong with the party, you see. Um, parties are nice things, aren't they? It's good to get together with family and rejoice and celebrate and do all those things. But ever been to those parties where they don't go right? Ever been to a party where there is an argument between a couple of family members or something goes wrong, an argument takes place, and then all of a sudden everyone feels like awkward and they don't know what to say because you're meant to be at a party but there's this argument taking place. And I'm sure you've been to something like that. I especially remember growing up, I still have memories growing up, and we used to go to parties every week. But do you know which parties I remember the most? The ones where they had an argument. <laughs> it's a shame, isn't it? You know, when, when things started off okay, when all the families were together, the cousins are all together, we're playing, you know, we're playing and doing silly things. And all of a sudden, you see a screaming going on or an argument going on, and things turn sour. All of a sudden, you're there looking, what's going on here? We tend to remember only the, you know, the bad stuff. Well, that's what happened at this particular party, right? It got awkward <laughs> all of a sudden. Sarah noticed that Ishmael was mocking her son. So this 15-year-old son of Hagar, her Egyptian maid that she had given to her husband because they thought it was a good idea for him to have a child through her because they couldn't wait or whatever it was, whatever the reasoning was, um, is mocking her son, is making fun of her, of her son Isaac. And her immediate response to that is, uh, she goes to her husband and she says, I want them out. I want them both out. Mother and son, I don't want them here because I don't want... And, and she, maybe she was thinking ahead of time because if this is starting now, when he's at this age, it was probably going to progress later on where there's going to be this rivalry between those two. Maybe she was thinking like that. I don't know. Either way... She says to her husband, I don't want them here because I don't want him or her inheriting half of all your stuff. Okay? I don't want them together because it's going to cause more conflict. I don't want them around my son. So she's put her husband in a very difficult position because he loves his son, Ishmael. He loves him. Not as if he didn't love him. He loved his son. And on top of that, you know, when you were, if you were a... a, a, a a mother and a son, okay, and he's still young, maybe 15 years old, um, and you cast them out, 
you don't have any more protection of the clan, as it were, all the all the all the things that are set in place. It put it would have put them in a very perilous position. A woman and a young son alone in the world would not be very safe from pred- predators and evil men, wild animals. But Abraham still loved Ishmael. He was still his son, and no doubt. You know, his love for him had grown over the years, but there was obviously no love lost between Sarah and Hagar. So what does Abraham do? He is caught literally between a rock and a hard place. And, and just, to, just before we get to that, um, you know, we are free to make choices. Okay? God has given us amazing freedoms to make choices in our lives. We can choose to go left all right. We can choose to go east or west. We can choose this thing or that thing. But one thing we are not free of are the consequences of our choices. God doesn't protect us from the consequences of our choices. Sometimes he may. Sometimes he doesn't. Abraham was still reaping the fruit of the decision that he'd made 15 years before or so. He's still reaping the, the fruit of that when he decided to take his wife's advice and produce a son with Hagar. And in that decision, we see the fruits of division. Okay? We see that this thing being divided and causing division. Now he's stuck in a position where he has to make a decision. But God is gracious, isn't he? Isn't God beautiful? And so... The silent observer in all of this drama that's going on is God. And he already knew what was going to happen. He had already organized what was going to happen, what was going to be a response to this, his response to this. And so he says to Abraham, while the poor guy was there working out what to do, in verse 12, it says, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, which listen to her. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. Okay, so God essentially agreed that Abraham should send them away. He said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of the kid. Okay, you don't have to worry that he's going to die or anything like that. I'll take care of him. He's going to, I'm going to make sure he becomes a great nation as well. And that he shouldn't be fearful about it because they no longer needed him to look after them. God said, I can look after them directly. And they were going to flourish as well. And so it says in verse 20, As for Ishmael, or sorry, Oh, no, I've actually, I just want to give you a quote because he promises, uh, promises um, Abraham beforehand in Genesis 17.20. He says, And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make him a great nation. So God has already promised. Like, consider this. He's been told to get rid of his 15-year-old son and the mother of that son and to cast them out of his life. Probably, maybe to never see them again. What does he do? Look at verse 14. You want to see dependability? And Abraham rose up early in the morning. 
and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. You want dependability? That is dependability. God says to him, send her away. It's okay. The guy doesn't even sleep in the next day. He doesn't spend any time with them thinking, I've got to do all these other things. I've got to prepare. He gives them a bottle of water and sends them on their way. First thing in the morning. Now, he doesn't question God. He doesn't worry about it. He doesn't drag his feet about doing this thing. He doesn't make huge plans about, you know, what do we do now? Okay, so maybe we'll, we'll send, you know, 10 people with her. Ten, send some guys. No, he doesn't do anything. He just gives her a bottle of water and says, you know, on your way. Now that, now I want you to put yourself in Abraham's position for a moment. Would you do that? Would you wake up the next morning and actually just do that? Is there, any, is there any doubt why they called this guy the father of faith? He, God simply said to him, don't worry about it. I've got it under control. And the next morning, bang, he's done it. Now that is faith. That is an example of obedience. And that's something that we would struggle with if we were placed in the same position. And Abraham... You can see Abraham not just trusted God, but he loved God. He loved it. You know why he loved him? Because his obedience showed it. He wanted to please God more than anything else. And Abraham's obedience to God's command is a sign of love for him. His love for God was greater than his love even for his own son. He was ready to say goodbye to his son Ishmael the very next morning. And what comes through is his love. Yeah, Jesus actually says that to us. He tells he actually says the measure of your love for him is how you obey him. Did you know that? You want to measure your genuine love for for Jesus? You say I love Jesus and we can say we love Jesus every day of our lives, but the real measure of how much you love him is whether you're actually willing to obey him. And Jesus says in John 14, 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's simple. Now, how well do we do that? If you had to measure your, your love for Jesus by your obedience to him, think for a moment, how would you grade yourself? How much do we love him? Does our obedience tell that story? Is it lined up with what we say? How does it compare to Abraham's love for the Lord? Remember, 1 John 4.19 says, We love him because he first loved us. So in order to love God, you need to first of all receive his love. You need to appreciate his love. And then you can begin to obey and show your love. Other than that, you're playing games in religion. And sometimes the Lord allows us to go through very difficult times in our lives to reveal those things to ourselves, to teach us valuable lessons, 
to reveal not only his love for us, but our love for him. And so we have this passage now, fifteen and verse 15 and 16. It says, And the water was spent in the bottle. So she's gone out. They've taken off. And the water's finished already. Now, we don't know how long it was, but the water finished in that bottle. Now, it wasn't a little thing. It was a, probably a bag of water. Okay, So it would have been something you put over your shoulder in made up, made with uh, uh, probably a lamb's skin or something like that. But no, they, they'd finished the water, which means they'd probably walked a fair way. And it says, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs, which means he was too weak to go on. So this kid was too weak to go on, and she's actually left him under a bush somewhere. And in verse 16, it says, and she went and sat her down again, over against him a good way off, as it were a bowshot. For she said, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lift up her voice and wept. So Hagar found herself uh, in this situation where she was going to experience the death of her son. The water had run out. She'd, she'd essentially resigned herself to the fact that they were both going to die. But she couldn't bear the sight of watching him actually die. So she leaves him and goes probably about 100 metres away okay, and starts crying where she is. Now, it doesn't say she called out to God. It just says that she cried. But then God responds. And it says God heard the voice of her son. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, And God heard the voice of the lad, not her voice, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And so let me just share with you why that's significant. Because it is. I have no doubt that being 15 years old, Abraham would have taught his son about God. It was his son. And so God hears the voice of the lad who probably cried out to him, saying, please save us. She was worried about her son. Her son was probably asking God to save his mum. <laughs> but God heard the voice of his son, which means he knew God. He knew who God was. God heard his voice. And he says to Hagar, don't worry, I've got it under control. Lift him up, I'm, I'm going to keep my promise. God intervened, not by some extraordinary miracle, because most of you know the story where you know, Moses strikes the rock you know, and water comes gushing out you know, and, and gives water to like a million people okay, in the middle of the desert. It wasn't something like that, like that type of miracle, but it was a miracle nonetheless. You see... He may not have caused water to gush out of a rock, but what he did do was open up her eyes to the presence of a well that she couldn't see. He opened her eyes. And it says in verse 19, And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad to drink. 
Sometimes the Lord has given us all the resources we need in order to achieve what he has called us to. Sometimes we simply need a well of water. And all we need is eyes opened to see what we have in front of us. And from then we can flourish by the grace of God. You'll notice it says in verse 20 and 21, And God was with the lad. He continued in a relationship with this, uh, with this young boy as he grew. And he dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. His mother took him, look at this, a wife out of the land of Egypt. And that's the end of that particular passage. So he grew up. God was with him. He became an archer. So look, we believe in him. And by believing in Jesus, the Bible says that he gives you the Holy Spirit, which then quenches your thirst, which then fills up your life, which then changes you forever, and you have eternal life. That's salvation. You understand that we are living in the wilderness of this world, that there are people dying all around us, and not only are they thirsty and dying, and they are... uh, emaciated but they are living in darkness as well and our call is when god has opened up our eyes like he did to hagar what did she do she went and filled up her bottle and what did she do she then went and gave drink to her son so this morning has god opened up your eyes have you received the gift of the holy ghost Are you saved? Do you have Jesus in your life? Then you are now called to give of that to other people. To bring that water of life to everyone around you. Starting with the people that are closest to you. The people that you love. If you have Jesus, you are filled already. But there are plenty of people who don't. Don't forget them. But remember to keep your eyes always on him. God bless you. Thank you.